Welcome to Hazel's Story, an epic saga podcast. Usually, this is where I'd say that this show is a deep dive into the panels and pages of Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples' comic book Masterpiece, unpacking the amazing characters, themes, and weirdness in this grand space opera. And don't worry, Abu and I will be back here sharing our usual saga obsession with you a little later this month. But in the meantime, we wanted to share an episode of another new podcast that we thought you all might enjoy about a different epic comic book series without which Saga might never have existed, The Sandman. Now, there are quite a few Sandman podcasts out there already, but The Sandman Unlocked is the best I've ever heard. It combines issue-by-issue read-alongs of the comic series with reactions and breakdowns to the new Sandman Netflix series as well. The show rules. Rather than take my word for it, though, please enjoy the following full episode of The Sandman Unlocked, which is a read-along episode for issue number one, of the Sandman comic. If you haven't read the Sandman comic before, it's available wherever you normally find digital comics. And actually, the entire 10-volume Sandman series is currently available free to read on Comixology Unlimited, if that's your thing. This is in no way an ad for Comixology Unlimited, just an FYI that you can currently read all of the Sandman there for only like a $6 a month subscription in the US. Just saying. Again, not an ad, just information. Anyway, without further ado, Here's the Sandman Unlocked, issue number one read-along, Sleep of the Just. For a moment, Roderick Burgess is scared. He thinks of the effrontery of his action, to capture death, to bind the Reaper. For a moment, he hesitates but only for a moment. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ben Childers, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman Issue 1, Sleep of the Just. And I'm joined by my two illustrious co-hosts, Ashley Mowers. Hi. And Sean Dotson. Hi, Ben. Hi, Ashley. On each episode, we'll be deconstructing the issue in six separate sections. First will be the rundown, where we let you know who created the issue. Next, the catch-up, to be sure you know where we are in the story. And then, the breakdown. This gives you a synopsis of that week's issue. Our next section is the deep dive, when we really get into everything that happened. In our penultimate section, the panel... We'll talk about our favorite panel of the issue. And finally, we'll discuss the best non-Morpheus character. So there you have it. Ashley, over to you for the rundown. Thanks, Ben. So, okay. Issue one, Sleep of the Just. This is who we got on our team. Story, obviously, by Neil Gaiman. Uh, The penciling is done by Sam Keith. Inker was Mike Dringenberg. Colorist, Daniel Vozo. Letterer, Todd Klein. Cover art and interior illustrations were done by Dave McKean, who we'll see the work of throughout. Assistant editor, Art Young, and the editor, Karen Berger. Sean, give us the catch-up. Well, this one's pretty easy. There's nothing. We got a brand spanking new series uh, with creators no one's ever heard of. I guess, at most... um, A reader might be familiar with, you know, some of the other Sandmen that came before. It's not the very first Sandman series, so maybe you saw the sort of noir mystery man with the gas mask, or maybe the red and gold superhero Sandman from the 70s, but this is definitely something different and something new. Ben, let's do the breakdown. Thanks, Sean. So where we are right now in the story, as Sean said, it's issue one. And so what we're doing is we're getting the catalyst for what is going to be happening here in Preludes and Nocturnes, which is the first volume of the Sandman. And so what we have is we have the capturing of the Sandman by Roderick Burgress, who is a warlock sorcerer figure in the late 1800s in England. And what he wants to do is he wants to imprison death so that way he can live forever and so everyone can live forever. But instead of getting death, he gets dream. And so what we see over the course of this issue 
is that Dream is going to be stuck in a prison for about 80 years and will be continually tempted by humans to just do something for them to get out of his imprisonment. And what we're going to see in this issue is that the ultimate superpower that the Sandman has is patience. And what he's going to do is he's just going to wait and he's going to wait and he's going to wait and people are going to die and people are going to die. And eventually we're going to get to Roderick's son and a mistake is made. The Sandman is able to get out of his prison and what he now needs to do is collect his items. He has a ruby, he has a sand pouch, and he has a helmet. And he needs to go out and he find those things. And that is what the first volume is going to be covering. And that's the breakdown. So let's get into it and jump into the deep dive. Ashley, what's the first thing you'd like to talk about? Okay, so I might have picked one of the nerdiest, like very niche me things to be fi- hyper fixated on while I was preparing for this episode. <laughs> I kind of want to talk about the um, Maudlin Grimoire. It's spelled like Magdalene, uh, but for for those people who aren't familiar with the UK education system, Maudlin College in Oxford and a couple other colleges that are spelled Magdalene are really Maudlin. It's a whole French thing. There's a charter on the name, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so when you see I it, I almost used that as the quote. Did you really? <laughs> but I was nervous that I didn't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> so I found a different quote. I've got your back. And I made Sean say it. <laughs> yeah, I've got your back. So yeah, so when so if you're first coming across these comics, you see it, it makes total sense for you to want to pronounce it as you familiarized yourself with it, Magdalene Grimoire, but it's Maudlin Grimoire. And this is the book that, as Ben had mentioned, Dr. John Hathaway, curator of the Royal Museum, takes and uses to barter for his son's life with Roderick Burgess for his son's life. And you get the sense that his son died in the process or the course of World War I. You see this book referenced in so many other books and so many other media. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's it's funny because even like in a quick Google, it was like, oh, do you mean this? And it gave me all these search results for all the di- these different shows, all these different comics. So it comes up quite a bit. It's also referred to as, and this is some some dog Latin or cod Latin, if you excuse the phrase, Liber Fulvarium Paginarum, which means <laughs> if you take the Latin... It means the book of yellow pages, which is an inside joke between him and Terry Pratchett. It's basically the telephone book for demons. That's that's their big joke in uh, Good Omens. Terry Pratchett refers to it as the Necrotelecomenon in his Discworld series. It's also mentioned in uh, Lock and Key when they do the crossover with the Sandman. Kevin Smith brings it up in Green Arrow, Volume 3, uh, Issue 9, back in 2001, when he does an issue featuring Stan- Stanley Dover, who comes up later. It's mentioned in a Justice League episode when they have um, like a baby's adventures and babysitting episode. It's a whole thing. It's also mentioned in Buffy when Spike is a ghost for a bit. Uh, Fred... checks it out of the library to try to help him of course it's in buffy yeah exactly i was just like oh this is perfect i love this so this is this is one of those sort of pop culture items that comes up frequently it's like the alan Smythe of fictional (laughs) you know occult knowledge right (laughs) right exactly exactly well and then for me in my own nerdy background I was really curious to see what this could possibly be based off of. And throughout history, there are tons of just bogus occult grimoires and such that, that go through that have been like produced and published by who are functionally snake oil salesmen before we had snake oil salesmen, you know, people trying to get other people's hopes up for being able to cheat death or win over, you know, someone in a bout of unrequited love or, uh, you know, one spell I came across was trying to get people to dance naked for you. So it's just r- ridiculous stuff. Just absolutely. Money does that. Yeah. Money does that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's just bogus. But the one that I found that was the closest to what the the text, the text being the, the issue that we're discussing, references that you, you see Burgess sort of talk about is this book called The Grand Grimoire. This book 
book really is two books. The first book tells you, quote, and I'm putting, I'm saying tells you in quotes, like heavy quotes, how to summon demons and construct tools to do their bidding. The second book explains how to make packs, bind demons without the tools if you don't have the first book, um, and gives you various spells. And the book also describes, and I find this hilarious, the political landscape of hell. You know, as you see in the comics as we get through them, you've got Lucifer, classic, he's the emperor. You've got the princes, you've got the Grand Duke. Did you know that hell has a prime minister? <laughs> I would just Is assume it Boris Johnson? the political landscape of hell <laughs> looks a lot like ours. I just figured it's it's probably pretty similar. Yeah. It's it's hilarious to me. Um, and there you've got like Brigadier Major. It goes like all the way down to like Inspector General. I find this so funny <laughs> that they like just the, the human imagination was like, you know what hell needs? Structure. And they have diagrams for all of them, too, as to, like, what they look like. Dr. Owen Davies from the University of Hertfordshire actually suggests, even though the book claims to be dated back all the way to 1422, that it was actually published in 1702. So, again, you've got, you know, bogus publication dates. You've got somebody named Antonia Venetana del Rabina who claims that the text was actually... Um, taken from text composed by King Solomon himself. Not true. I can tell just up front, there's a lot of reasons why that's not true. Primarily because there are some prayers in the book that ha- suggest that King Solomon would be praying to Jehovah, but Jehovah is a Latinization of the Hebrew Yahweh, and they wouldn't be praying, Israelites would not be praying in Latin. Just a heads up. If you're ever wondering, hey, is this a real occult book? Especially if it's claiming to be of, of Israelite origin. No, no. They wouldn't you're be praying in Latin. You're just your local library yeah, if you're and like you come going, across a book of the damned. Yeah, if you're like, I've got You're some- like, wait a second. <laughs> this isn't Greek. <laughs> but they're talking about the Israelis. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. If you've got some free time in your day and you're like, eh, I'm bored and kind of lonely, still getting out of the pandemic. I could use a friend. Let's dredge up a demon. Th- th- this is just not, <laughs> this is not on. This is not going to happen. So, yeah, I have a whole list of reasons why the book is absolute. I, I said I would be more delicate on this podcast. It is malarkey. I won't <laughs> use the word that I have written down. But it is very funny to read. Uh, so you can, you can find on archives, you can find scans of the pages. It's, it's interesting historically, but a lot of these grimoires, if you look at them, they're, it's obvious for their time. There are clear racist depictions of Jews in them because there's ignorant cultural references that they clearly didn't have any context for and didn't bother to look into. Because again, these people were charlatans, the people who were writing them. So they weren't going to be putting a lot of painstaking research into it. They were just trying to write what they thought would sound fun um, and would be, you know, would grip people to buy it. But, you know, if you're ever curious, there's a spell to enchant firearms. Again, not, not getting a big idea that King Solomon was a gun guy. Just a thought. And there's also a a really hilarious spell to try to attract the one that you love, where they suggest that you peel a piece of flesh off of a newborn foal, which I don't get a big sense would um, attract many people on stench alone. But That's not really a turn on for most. Yeah, I didn't think so either. But I was like, hey, different times. You know, I don't want to approach this with a modern lens. So who knows? But just the whole concept of grimoires being passed down. It makes sense for narrative purposes. Neil Gaiman would be like, yeah, I know these were their thing. What if one of them were real? Totally makes sense that you would pull this for narrative purposes. But if anyone's just like, I wonder if, no, just don't. Like for historical purposes, yes, fascinating. For actual, you know, spellbinding and demon conjuring, not a thing. So don't do it. One of my favorite sort of tropes from fantasy and horror and things like that is really that making up some book of forbidden knowledge and then like listing it mixed in with things that do exist or sort of exist Mm -hmm. like that you know it's like uh Jorge Luis Borges does that uh H.P. Lovecraft did that so like Neil Gaiman's really fitting into this really cool tradition that was so exciting to me as like a kid reading these things because I would I'd try to go like um, you know, uh, track them down. Oh, like, totally. Go to the library and be like, do you have any books on demonology? You know? <laughs> right. 
No, exactly. I remember being like obsessed with demons. I went through, or not demons, but I went through a whole like raven phase. So anytime I saw a crow or a raven, I was like, oh, they're coming. And my mom was like, stop being weird. Uh, so like, I think all like, kids, <laughs> I think all kids You're just like waiting for that. Odin for showing up. <laughs> right, exactly. Even my dad's like, you know the these things are- The storm crow's here. <laughs> my dad's like, you know these things aren't real, right? I'm like, yeah, but what if- what if? <laughs> so yeah, so you know, now having been further educated, <laughs> you look at it, you go, oh, this is bunk, but it's fun. It's it's funny. <laughs> Absolutely, Sean. What about you? What's the uh, one thing you wanted to pull out? Yeah, sure. Uh, oh, I also did want to say though, on Ashley's point, the actual spell that you know, I give you a feather taken from an angel. Mm-hmm. That that whole thing that Burgess uses to in his attempt to capture death mistakenly, you know, binds a tired and, and weakened dream, right? Um, that spell was just completely made up by Neil Gaiman, but it takes, he found the sort of rhythm of it in this kind of creepy poem he remembered. So <laughs> the words are all his, but the the, the sort of flow um, come, comes from this poem that he thought sounded spell-like. So what I'd like to talk about here is that right off the bat, Gaiman displays this deep knowledge of and affection for the conventions of genre, right? That's sort of what this story is. Um, and But he's also aware that tools like genre can also be a sort of trap. And this ends up as a major theme of the Preludes and, and Nocturnes arc. My thinking is he's interested in playing with these generic conventions but also in interrogating them, testing their limits, even overturning them entirely. And this becomes really obvious as the series goes on, but it's there from the very first issue. So Neil has said that the tone of the first issue was intended to be that of the classical English horror story. And he most notably cited Dennis Wheatley as the inspiration here. Dennis Wheatley was this prolific and extremely popular British author in the mid-20th century, who I've seen described as servant of the queen and enemy of the devil. (laughs) He was a military man, a strict moralist, he worked for Churchill during the war, and he was, all in all, a serious snob who could tell a a hell of a story, (laughs) usually (laughs) involving Satanists, sex, and car chases. Classic. Yeah, right? His stories were about the forces of chaos versus the forces of order, very Manichian. One journalist says, quote, In the world of Dennis Wheatley, nowhere outside these shores really exists. Talking about the British Isles. Foreigners should remain foreigners. If they intrude at all into our green little sphere, they tend to do so as villains, as moral degenerates, as the instigators of dark and terrible religions. Doesn't sound much like Neil Gaiman, does it? But that's one of the really cool things about this issue and the series overall. The Sandman is perfectly happy to take this basic narrative structure and turn it completely inside out. So you've still got the secret cults, the dark and mysterious foreigner, the criminality, the adventure and the magic. But in Gaiman's telling, it's the homegrown British aristocrats like Roderick Burgess, who are the villains, and the occult invader from another world who's the victim and hero. So as Dream says, you know, when he finally escapes and goes to confront Alex Burgess, you barred me from my realm with your foolish circle. You threatened, cajoled, and pleaded for gifts that are neither mankind's to receive nor mine to give. You had no thought for the harm you must have brought to your world. Lord, what fools these mortals be. First of many Shakespeare references. In Highbender's Sandman Companion, Highbender's Sandman Companion, by the way, really instrumental to the research I'm doing for the show. Really well-written book, not in print, kind of expensive, but if you're interested, track it down. Anyway, in a standard epic quest, the hero starts out in ordinary surroundings and then experiences some kind of shock that sends him into a shadow realm where he does battle with primal forces. In the Sandman's case, however, His ordinary surroundings are the Shadow Realm, because he's the personification of myths and dreams. Therefore, the shock he experiences is being dragged from his realm of mystery and nightmare to some penny-ante magician's basement, 
and instead of doing battle with epic forces, he remains a still and silent prisoner in that basement for 72 years. So we see this reversal of the English horror story, this inversion of the hero's quest, but ultimately, I don't think Neil's just showing off here, um, although he does often show off, right? I think Gaiman is interested in exploring the concept of empathy and this almost mag magical ability fiction stories have to produce empathy in readers and in the world. I've seen Neil quote this great uh, Ogden Nash line. Ogden Nash is a poet where he says, where there's a monster, there's a miracle. And that's sort of what I think this first issue shows us, and it gives us an important perspective on the series as a whole. That's incredible. Yeah, I um, have almost no familiarity with the British horror genre and those tropes that, e that exist in it. And I think most readers are probably, also they might be familiar with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, maybe? Is that in the same like genre, the same literary genre as what you were referencing? Yeah, I think Frankenstein would have come, you know, a lot earlier, mid 19th century rather than mid 20th century. And you know, many people point to that as one of the, if not the first science fiction novel. But yes, it's also got that sort of tragic, mysterious figure, right? But I suppose the difference between that and Wheatley's books is that Wheatley's books definitely made a ton of money and they were definitely lurid and they were meant to sort of inflame those passions. And I think Wheatley was probably a little more xenophobic. So yeah, potentially Gaiman is thinking both inverting these tropes of the popular fiction from when he was growing up that he enjoyed, but also really want to poke at. And in doing so, you know, sort of also bringing in this much wider range of literary influences that do point to finding sort of empathy in these monstrous figures, right? Thanks, Sean. That was really, really interesting. Ashley, what was your second thing you wanted to mm -hmm. chat about? Yeah, the other thing that I was really curious about in this first issue was just when they reference this sleeping sickness that people are succumbing to, whether that was a real thing or not. And actually, pushing my glasses up my nose, there was a pandemic of encephalitis lethargica in that period through 1915 to 1926. Uh, it was a whole big deal. It was a big mystery. It started in Vienna and then rapidly spread wildfire throughout the entire world. So all the people that they're hitting and the way that they're describing their symptoms is reflective of this actual real life pandemic that happened. And I was like, oh, timely love reading about another pandemic. It's so great. But it's just... Uh, Really fascinating some of the symptoms that people experience. Like I said, people thought it was a new illness and the way that they were sort of describing the disease itself. It wasn't until Konstantin von Economo was describing this unique pattern that he recognized in deceased patients, the disease come up under other names, botulism, an epidemic stupor, hysteroepilepsy, acute dementia, and then in some medical records. It was just described as an obscure disease with cerebral symptoms. <laughs> Very helpful. Yeah, exactly. Helpful. Exactly. They were really trying to figure it out, but it was spreading so quickly and people were just succumbing to, to this sleeping sickness that they didn't know what to do. So that eh, sounds a little familiar. It also coincided with an influenza pandemic that hit in 1918. And so it's possible they theorize that the influenza virus potentiated the aspects or the symptoms of the encephalitis pandemic that had hit. But also interestingly, a lot of surviving patients of this pandemic made a complete recovery. Like there were people that had died, but mm. most of them returned to normal lives. So it's like it hit and then suddenly they just were fine again and woke up and were, were were cool. So sometimes they would wake up really quickly. Sometimes they the sleeping sickness would hit them very rapidly. Sometimes people would wake up disabled, you know, confined to a wheelchair. Some did die in their sleep. Notable cases, really the one that stuck out to me the most was there is a speculation that Hitler had this for a bit. So who's to say? Possibly. <laughs> When he was a young adult, they suggest that possibly this was the case. And also 
would make a more substantial case for Parkinsonism later. It's also referenced in various books throughout that time period as this sort of like mysterious mystical disease that happened. So Neil Gaiman's definitely pulling on something that captured not only the medical imagination, but just like the narrative imagination as well. So the fact that he's pulling from this very real historical event, I, again, I just, that's one of the reasons I absolutely love his work is because he takes the real and he makes it fantastic. He just highlights it a bit more and brings almost more truth to it than the reality offered. Just a fascinating little tidbit. Meditate on that, I guess, if you're really fascinated with pandemics. Incredible. Yeah. It's amazing how, um, you know, Gaiman is able to tie these disparate threads together with reality, with the story he's trying to tell, and also the fact that he's like writing into a comic book world, right? That that pre-exists this. Yeah. So I, I, you know, his his thinking was he's creating this new Sandman character, this incredibly powerful, immortal, cosmic near omnipotent being, right? But he's writing it into this world of DC comic superheroes. And he sort of has to ask himself the question of why does no one know this guy exists previous mm. to this? They've been telling these stories for 60 years. Why isn't he involved in anything? And his answer was, well, he's been imprisoned throughout That's the entire. That's so interesting. I didn't, I didn't put that together. Mm -hmm. That is such a good, <laughs> so cool. Yeah. So it fits with this historical event and with the, you know, continuity of the, storytelling universe he's trying to write into it fits the sort of early 20th century like Aleister Crowley sort of mysticism kind of thing and just works so well mm -hmm. all right that's the deep dive so the next thing we're going to do is we've each selected our favorite panel but what I thought would be good is to have Sean define for us what is a panel because there's a panel, there's a page, there's a bunch of different words used to describe what you have in a comic. And I think it'd be nice to say, what is a panel? Okay, sure. Yes. So Scott McCloud, who is a comic book creator and sort of theorist on the medium, famously described comic book panels as boxes of time, right? The fundamental unit of the comics medium is the page and the story told in that page that each singular event is divided into one of those little boxes that we call a panel. So if you haven't read many comic books before, you know, I've heard some people come up to me and say, yeah, I want to try these out, but I, I don't really know how to read them. Well, you generally read them in the same way that you would anything else in the English language, left to right, top to bottom. Each one is highlighting a certain moment that the storyteller wishes to show you and act as a bridge between that moment and the rest of the story. And my comic book knowledge is limited, but it felt like when I was reading The Sandman that he was almost pushing to deconstruct the rules around panels and having either six to a page or three to a page or a splash page or a dual splash page. And when you look at it, he seems to be doing a lot with the individual pages and how to break them up and how to think about them differently. You know, there are some like I'm looking like here that have an obvious border that's in the background, but is meant to convey what's happening and to reflect what's happening. And then there's stuff in the background behind the panels that is used to help tell the story as well. And is that something that we see popularized after this, before this? Is this something that Neil Gaiman kind of pushed for? You know, this was happening a lot, I think, in popular comics. Maybe in the 1960s, you had a generation of creators start making books that were familiar with comic strips and comic books from their childhood. And so they knew the conventions of this medium. And this generation that came up are the ones who started to push at those boundaries mm. and start to think about, you know, the fact that you could change the panel shape and panel structure. It wasn't just a delivery system, but it could reflect the themes and the ideas that you're trying to convey simply by arranging these on a page. Um, and I think especially one thing that, that, that is especially notable here is that 
you know, Neil Gaiman is very aware, and he said this, you have six panels per page, you can fit in about 30 words per panel. So he knew what the basic structure was, but he learned how to write comic books from Alan Moore, who is a comic book writer who really knew how to juxtapose words and image in a way to create this sort of poetic tension between the two. You know, he utilized irony a lot. He utilized sort of rhyming images. And he wrote these really full scripts. These were really long uh, that scripts that described every single aspect of each panel on each page in the story he was trying to tell, down to like how figures should be placed and what colors should be used and where they should be arranged in the panel. So he really brought this sort of auteurist vision to the writer's role, and Neil Gaiman sort of inherited that and um, continued in that tradition. Sean, Alan Moore is quite prolific. What are the top maybe three comics that he is most associated with? Alan Moore was a real trailblazer in terms of changing how comic book stories were told, in terms of breaking down barriers for UK creators to work on American comics. And he really just created several of the high watermarks in the medium. So Watchmen is probably his most famous work. It's been adapted to film. It's been adapted to television. It's stayed in print for over 30 years now. V for Vendetta is a, another important Alan Moore work, writing the Swamp Thing title for DC. A more recent one that has a really big and diverse audience, I would say a lot in the way that Sandman appeals to non-comic readers, appeals to, you know, more women than a major publication in a, like a superhero book no normally would or is traditionally thought to have, is Promethea. Promethea, also very concerned with the nature of storytelling and the imagination and things like that. Um, so Amazing. those are some of the works that Alan Moore has done. Very cool. The two that I had run into while I was learning about comics as a teenager were The Killing Joke, the Batman comic, yep. The Killing Joke. We own that one. And I remember being absolutely horrified and being, this is not the Batman I grew up with. And then the next, the, the one that I got immediately after that, from hell, Jack the Ripper. Oh. Like, why? <laughs> I have terrible luck. So I always associated Alan Moore with like the most horrifying things you could read. Yeah, yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. He definitely deconstructed a lot of what we think about when it comes to who our superheroes are and what they're capable of. Sean, you mentioned rhyming images. Could you go a little more into that? That's not a phrase that I've heard before. Oh, well, you know, it's not really like necessarily an official term or anything like that, but it is something I think that happens frequently in Sandman in particular, and I can try to kind of pointed out when it does, you'll notice that Neil Gaiman and the artists on the series will often use the layout of a panel, how figures are positioned, maybe um, the objects in it, to prompt us to think about an earlier moment in the series. So it'll be sort of a reflection of something that's happened previously, and it will create this nonverbal uh, resonance in the mind that will you know reinforce a theme or, or highlight a particular moment's importance or something like that. Got it. Okay. Thank you. So with all that, Ashley, what was your favorite panel from issue one? Oh gosh, this was so hard to pick. There were so many great panels, and like Sean has said, you know he's breaking a lot of conventions. So it's like, okay, is this technically a panel? Um, so one of my favorite and my. My volume doesn't have page numbers, so you'll have to bear with me. Um, but it's right after the sort of title page where you have Sleep of the Just bordering the corner. Um, you have Dream in the summoning circle, laying down, facing away from the cultists. And the reason I like this 
this panel in particular, one, just the way the border is, it feels like it's kind of cradling him. Like he's this like infantile sort of creature that they've conjured. Um, and the way his cloak is billed, and you see it better on the page right before it, but the way they've drawn his cloak, you don't see the telltale flames that you'll see later. The texture of it, the way that it's drawn, it looks, and forgive me if this is this language makes people uncomfortable, it looks a little like afterbirth, like a placenta, the way he's being Absolutely. thrown in there, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and like the the maroon coat around him yes. and everything. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, he's just been captured. His his cloak is billowing out like this. He's in the fetal position. Um, you see him at his most vulnerable. And he, you know, he's encased in what we see later. It looks like this kind of glass egg. And you see throughout the series, these drawings, these these ink drawings of dreams sort of developing in an egg. So I feel like it harkens back to that a lot. And this like idea of if I'm going to be sort of really insufferable, it feels like the birth of a dream. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> where, where, you know, it fits that egg motif. You see him in his most vulnerable, just the way it's it's spread out like that. I just find that really fascinating. You, you don't see him in this kind of positioning really at all, apart from these first few images and the fact that this is his introduction. You don't think, oh, protagonist, hero, the person you want to really be looking towards for anything. No, he's he's so lifeless in this moment that I find it to be a really compelling first introduction. That's so great. I was so close to choosing that same image. <laughs> Were you really? <laughs> so I'm really happy that that you picked it and you got to talk about it. I mean, I, com- I completely agree. And I think the sort of birth metaphor is absolutely deliberate. And that was page nine, if you have the original set of comics and wanted to check that out. Those sort of rounded, curved panels as he's imprisoned um, continue throughout the book. The shape, you know, you could even say begins to change a little bit as Dream gets closer and closer to being released. I'm thinking of the page where Alex is walking down to this sort of crypt where Dream is imprisoned. That's a really lovely page. The top row, the first two panels, are him walking down. The middle row is him looking at dream imprisoned sort of uh, silhouette of dream in shadow and he's explaining that he wants power immortality and a promise that you won't seek revenge and then beneath that sort of bottom rounded panel you see dream speak for the first time where he says just no and that sort of shape is almost like you know, to continue this this metaphor you brought up, it's almost sort of moving through like a birth canal, right? Mm-hmm. You know, or like a water droplet about to pop. Yeah. I think that's so great. And and just to come back to that panel, the page that you mentioned, this is one example of Gaiman not breaking convention and, and keeping with it here because the splash page, the splash page, the title page is a is a wonderful tradition in comics. You know, Jack Kirby, I think, did it in every comic he drew. Wherever the title page was, there's a big, you know, exciting splash page to, to introduce you to the action. And then the funny sort of overturning here is that it's completely passive, right? It's this exactly. thing just laying on the ground. So even when he manages to still do the convention, he's still yes. upending the convention. Mm-hmm. Yes. And what's also interesting is that in, in this first issue... The Sandman, Morpheus, he is positioned as an antagonist to Burgress, who is our protagonist, who is driving, right? The Sandman drives no activity in this first issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so weird. It's such, it's it's a it's an issue of almost total passivity, right? Yeah. Because Dream is imprisoned. The other people we meet are victims of this sleepy sickness, right? So they're they're sort of, you know, prisoners in their own way, being forced to stay awake or being forced to live entirely asleep. And then even Roderick and Alex are, you know, stuck in a position of passivity in a way because they can't get what they want. They can't compel a dream to give them this power that they're looking for. Everyone is sort of frozen until that wonderful, you know, a uh, moment of release where dream finally goes through that portal he creates in that in that big um, panel and it's like you know the action kicks in for the first time 
Well, let me jump in then. That's page 30, and that's actually my panel that I had chosen. If we're going to keep this birth metaphor kind of moving forward, right? This is definitely the expulsion (laughs) of of dream back into the dreaming, right? And so what we see is we see a, a pale white figure outstretched blue and black hair, and he has conjured some sort of teal blue sky cloud there's these like little kind of almost faces in the bottom left and really what it's trying to convey in in my mind is that you know dream pulls his essence from the dreaming and as he pulls back in there and and as he is the one who creates nightmares creates stories creates the space for dreaming to be in make sure that things work it's on us and everything that dreams to then populate and participate in there. And right from right after this, you see how he will be using our dreams that he is a part of for the next 75 issues to fulfill his goals. And he is now the protagonist, right? He has shifted from antagonist of Roderick and Alex to now protagonist in our story. And that is very clearly defined in the way that Neil Gaiman decided to portray this panel along with his creative team. Yeah. hundred percent agree with that. And that's something we really see. Like we even see it later in the issue, right? Where he's, he's traveling through dreams and grabbing food and grabbing clothing from these sleeping dreamers. And that relationship between the King of dreams and the, the, the dreamers is one that's, you know, it's, it's always intention throughout the series and different members of Dream's family of the Endless have a different sense of, you know, do they rule over these people who, you know, have this quality that they personify, that they represent, or do they serve them, right? And Dream has a different answer, say, than a sibling like Desire. Right. But I love to see how that's visually represented the way he's sort of shapes and, and empowered uh, by Dream's those like little faces in the corner there and everything, as you pointed out. So let's slide into our last section, and that is the best non-Morpheus character from this issue. So you can never pick Morpheus. Uh, We could create more rules, like you can't pick the same character more than once, but that seems like a lot of things to remember who picked what, so we're not going to do that. So Ashley, I thought we could pitch over to you. Sure. So you get the first stab here. (laughs) Favorite non-Morpheus character. I can promise you mine is not going to come up again. (laughs) Because my my favorite non-Sandman character of this issue uh, is Dr. John Hathaway. And so he doesn't come oh, up for... Yeah, I know. Guy. I know. Well, and that's, that's part of... I felt like I had to show him some love. He's a tragic figure. Part of the reason why I picked him is because he, he very clearly cares for his son deeply. It's like the immediate um, impetus for why he's seeking Burgess out, someone like Burgess. He's very clearly a respected figure in his field is the curator of the Royal Museum. And so he's really not only putting his his life, but his reputation on the line to try to save his son. And if you've ever met academics, sometimes they don't have the best relationships with their own kids. Uh, frankly, I mean, if you just look at the culture of academia, I, Sean, I feel like you would know this, but it's true, it's true. you know, you have to work so hard to get into your field, that that's a lot to risk. And so he clearly like loves his son deeply, wants to get him back, steals from the Royal Museum to try to get him back with really no, he has to be at his wits end because there's no real promise that this could work. So he's, he's at the last sort of dredges of hope here. And once he realizes that there is not going to be any sort of resurrection for his own son. He he tries to get back at Burgess and he tries to do right by the museum, but then ultimately is, is foiled one last time with his suicide note being, being burned. So I just, for, for all of the things he tries to do well, for all the attempts at good that he puts forward, it's sadly an incredibly beautiful but tragic, ultimately tragic figure that um, I just don't think gets enough love. So I just want to shout out to, to Dr. John Hathaway for trying. Uh, Sandman's greatest total failure, Dr. John Hathaway. <laughs> <laughs> I also thought, you know, at, at that, 
I mean, I agree. That's a really great point. And can, oh, can you imagine like the horror of, you know, he's, he's taking his own life and, and trying to make some amends at the end of this. And he's, right. you know, leaning over this table and dying and looking at this letter, his confession just burn in front of him. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, eventually when we, when we do travel with dream to hell, you do wonder as you've seen, you're seeing all these different sections of hell, like what was his ultimate fate? We don't really see him again. I don't think, but there is that sort of like, shoot, I actually am really invested in this guy. He, he tried so hard. I hope he's not condemned in some way. Uh, I hope he, he got to be reunited with his son in the afterlife. So there's just a lot of like dreary sadness to it that of course uh, I eat up. Yes. The one thing that seemed odd to me about him is Mm -hmm. that very first panel on page one where his driver says, wake up, sir, we're here. And I know, I know why Neil Gaiman had to do that, right? You gotta start this Sandman story with wake up. But dude's son just died and he's like napping in the back of this car (laughs) going to sell his soul to this musician and doom his career like i feel like i would be awake for that uh, that whole ride i feel like grief everyone grieves differently when i'm sad i just take naps all the time so like maybe for him he's just like I gotta, I gotta escape this on this bumpy carriage ride. I'm just going to like forcibly put myself to into a meditative state until I fall asleep. That is a good. Point. I gotta be sharp to work with this occultist. He's not, <laughs> he's not gonna get anything by me. I'm, I'm an academic. I'm ready yeah. to go. Okay, I'm convinced. All right, I changed my mind. I, <laughs> I do wonder if he, he, if he dreamed of anything while he was napping though. Yeah, that's true. Okay, Sean. Favorite non-Morpheus character from issue one? Um, well, actually, so this is, um, you know, I don't have a ton to say to say about him, but I've got to give props to the character who inspired the title of this issue, Sleep of the Just. I got to give it to Wesley Dodds, the original Sandman, who is maybe the least passive character in a in an issue of passivity right (laughs) you know this was a character who's who you know it says the universe knows someone is missing and slowly attempts to replace him wesley dodd's nightmares have stopped since he started going out at night and he just puts evil people to sleep with his gas gun and he wears this cool world war one style (laughs) gas mask and um he's been a character who has a lot of history in 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 dc comics from the from 1939 to still being around today and i mean coming out of the success of neil gaiman's sandman series he had like a 70 issue long run in sandman mystery theater he shows up with prophetic dreams in mark wade and alex ross's kingdom come series from dc comics and he's just just an all-around cool old guy i think i agreed so much that that was my original choice oh shoot no wonder you had the page up already (laughs) (laughs) sean peek behind the curtain sean was looking through his through his version and i just hand him my ipad as i (laughs) so he could just read what he wants to read all right so my quick hit here is Colonel Sanders. <laughs> so if uh, if you're unaware, when Dream is rapidly, you know, after the expulsion scene and he is rapidly trying to find food and clothing, he swings through this dream that is populated by all sorts of people. Elvis, the Duke, Marilyn Monroe. There's a he's the <laughs> there's a person there in a in a clown mask. And then of all people, Colonel Sanders is there. And you just see Morpheus, butt naked, reaching his whole hand. I mean, <laughs> his entire arm past his elbow is into this bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Been there, been there. <laughs> Who hasn't? <laughs> and I just love that Colonel Sanders gets this shout out. And uh, Crispy Kentucky Fried Chicken, uh, sponsor us please, is in this uh, comic. Love that. Yeah, that bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken looks suspect, though. <laughs> it's dream chicken. <laughs> they didn't. It's dream chicken with feet. Yeah, so even vegans can eat the dream chicken. 
<laughs> I just I just kind of love that Dream's like hand is kind of positioned over uh Colonel Sanders though, like protective, like just excuse me, pardon me. I'm just gonna Right. Like in case he falls forward, <laughs> he can catch himself on his head. Amazing. Well, that's the six sections. We got through all six. How's everybody feeling? Feeling good. Feeling good. Any last thoughts before we sign off for the day? Shout out to Sam Keith's work on those last couple pages with the nightmare of eternal waking Mm. that Dream condemns Alex to. I just remember being so horrified of that as a child. You know, Sam Keith always shines when he can do that really bizarre horror work. So I just love those couple pages at the very end of the issue. Ashley, you got a last honorable mention you want to throw out there? Man, shoot. I I have to piggyback off of what Sean said. The the whole Sam Keith art style was really horrific to me, yes. especially when he has Absolutely. When he does anything that looks like melting teeth, ears, eyeballs, anything like that, it just immediately puts me on edge. Like the the one panel that we have of uh Alex waking up from like his first nightmare when he turns and his friend's face just starts melting progressively and all that liquid is eking out i just like i remember reading it and covering my ears as if i was trying to keep my own liquid from spilling out because it's such a visceral panel his work always inspires that like immediate physical reaction for me like i have to like hold the body part that he's drawn in such a like grotesque way that i just start like gripping myself, like I have to ground myself right now. I'm okay. Like I'm not dreaming. I'm not going to start melting. It's fine. I'm fine. So just shout out to his capacity to uh, draw liquids <laughs> and flesh. <laughs> yes, not, not not something that gets called out enough in this in this world, right? Draw a great liquid. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, we hope that you enjoyed this first episode of the Sandman Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. It's so good, right? If you want more amazing episodes of this wonderful show, make sure to search your favorite podcast platform for The Sandman Unlocked and follow the show. I really enjoy both the comic book issue deep dives and the Netflix series breakdown episodes that they've released so far. As for our show, Hazel's Story, Abu and I will soon be back in your feed on our regular every other week release schedule, diving into the first half of volume six of Saga. So make sure you've read chapters 31 to 33 before you listen to our next episode. Thank you for listening. And remember, podcasts are fragile things, but just like Alana, Marco, and Hazel, we'll all just keep on exploring and learning together.